0: Find out on Birdhugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis
1: for birds. Hello there. Hasn't the weather been glorious? Yes, we did have a heat wave recently, roughly three days with temperatures in the high 90s, which is pretty unusual for northern New England. In the earlier part of the summer. The good news is we are now enjoying a long stretch of mild weather with temperatures in the low to mid-70s and just enough rain, and my newly planted native seedlings are responding in a big way by taking root quickly. Yes, I'm still out there. I'm still planting those native seedlings. (laughs) I've got trays of coneflower, swamp milkweed, and sneezeweed going in next Everything a butterfly could ask for. And of course, Coneflower is the ultimate butterfly magnet. I'm already seeing eastern tiger swallowtails with their big yellow wings flitting around. I can't wait for the monarchs, and I am planting as fast as I can before the truly hot weather of July arrives. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be talking with Jim Ruminier about his new book, Water Connections, what fresh water means to us and what we mean to water. We'll be discussing how we can all help preserve and protect our rivers and wetlands. A surprising new study in the Journal of Frontiers of Psychology is showing that some birds imitate the songs of other birds by borrowing fragments of melodies and creating their own original music by using four key elements, the same elements used by human composers. A multidisciplinary team of scientists studied the Mockingbird, a bird well known for imitating the songs of other bird species. Their research revealed the Mockingbird doesn't just randomly mimic other bird songs. Instead, it uses the songs to string together its own original melodies using several compositional strategies. These strategies include change in pitch, change in timbre, the shortening of notes, and the lengthening of notes, strategies long employed by human composers to create original music. Scientists have long held the notion that birdsong was a thoughtless biological activity designed primarily for the purposes of mating and rearing young. However, the results of this new study are suggesting birds have always possessed an innate sense of musical talent that goes far beyond that of utilitarian. Even Charles Darwin, in his book The Descent of Man, made special note of the extraordinary abilities of birds to create beautiful and complex musical compositions. Perhaps it's time to give credit where credit is due, and the mockingbird should have his name changed to the Beethoven bird. New research is showing that songbirds avoid backyard bird feeders in areas with excessive noise during the day and light pollution at night. The study, published in the journal Global Change Biology, is showing that songbirds are highly stressed in yards and neighborhoods with excessive noise during the day and bright lighting at night and will go out of their way to avoid these areas. Accessing data from 3.4 million observations of bird watchers across the United States, scientists were able to identify 140 bird species that were unable to cope with roosting in or near areas with loud noise and nighttime lighting. The species include cedar waxwings, white-breasted nuthatches, and American goldfinches. The scientists conducting the study concluded human activity may be having more negative impact on birds than previously believed, with forest-dwelling birds being the most affected. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, Please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Jim Rumanier. Jim is a journalist and historian, and the author of the new book, Water Connections, What Fresh Water Means to Us and What We Mean to Water, published by Bahon Publishing. A native of New Hampshire, Jim spent six years studying human interactions with water. His book examines the impact of the federal government, town officials, and individual citizens upon the quality of our waters in New England. His hopeful book shows us the many ways people can preserve and protect their local waterways. And now I'd like to welcome Jim Rumanier to Birdhugger. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Well, thank you for the invitation. It's a subject I'd like to talk about, and you have an interesting uh, podcast and interested in participating.
1: Well, thank you so much. Now, I just finished reading your book, Water Connections, what freshwater means to us and what we mean to water, and it kind of blew my mind. So I was hoping we could talk about your book. What particularly caught my attention was chapter four about control of waters in towns and cities. So water is such a huge subject. I guess we could go in any direction, but if we could talk about flooding, you seem to have done a lot of wonderful research on flooding in especially New England towns. If we could just talk about the effects of flooding, that would be great.
2: It's certainly a relevant topic, given the fact that with the uh, instability in the climate, uh, we're seeing far more intense rainstorms, torrential downpours, and that is leading to Damages in both urban areas and in rural areas. Certainly in rural areas, it'd be more like roads being washed out. But in urban areas, flooding there too. Flooding of basements, destruction of streams. So it's uh, definitely a current topic.
1: Now, could you uh, maybe talk a little bit about Tropical Storm Irene and the effects it had on particularly Vermont? Vermont really got hit. I think we all
2: learned a lot from Irene. Irene. This was alternately called a tropical storm and a hurricane in Vermont. It uh, presented itself with significant rainfall and significant wind. The story that I used to get into that topic was about the longest river that is contained entirely within the state of Vermont. It is named Otter Creek. It flows south to north, and this river flows through Rutland, one of the larger cities in Vermont and then 30 miles later it flows into Middlebury and then on to Lake Champlain well Rutland itself was damaged significantly with historic floods as Otter Creek came in charged with water flooding the streets everything else and so one would have imagined that 30 miles downstream of Rutland the town of, of Middlebury would have been truly swept away but indeed There was very little flooding in Middlebury. And the answer is what happened to the land and the water between Rutland and Middlebury? There is, in that 30-mile stretch, some significant swamps, wetlands, floodplains, unbuilt upon. And so, as can happen with storms, the river overflowed, but it was really sucked up. The water was sucked up by the surrounding wetlands and swamps and then gradually released and so the peak of the flood reached middlebury well after it went through rutland and the lesson there in financial terms was that the town of middlebury was saved millions of dollars of damages due to the fact that the floods did not come rushing in but were gradually the waters were gradually released by the otter creek swamps that existed between the two communities we have Filled in a lot of wetlands over the last 150 years. We've filled in floodplains. We've filled in swamps. We've drained swamps. The lesson from Irene and Otter Creek was that wetlands do serve a purpose, more than one purpose. But certainly, when it comes to flood control, they can
1: they can slow the force of water as it proceeds downstream. Now, weren't there laws put into place back in the 70s and even the 80s forbidding the filling in of swamps and wetlands? There have been
2: laws put in place in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and in the new century. But there are exceptions, there are surprises, there are unusual events. And so, what you wind up with is uh, a growing body of law that's to protect these. Lands and waters, and ultimately our own civilization. It seems to take some terrific storms to bring on new laws. And then, once you have the laws, you have to enforce them. Enforcement is a fact. Now, the book also refers to an incident, an experience in uh, northwestern Massachusetts from the same storm. The, the town of Hawley, as uh, a former mill town, no longer has mills. And there's a stream that runs through it called Chickley Creek, the Chickley River. And the effect during the hurricane in 1938 was to substantially flood the town of Hawley. So people took some steps to protect the, prevent flooding from happening, mainly by dredging the river. But after Irene the selectmen in the town of Hawley went much further and dug out the river deeply, lined it with rock. It was like a gutter five miles long. This was in violation of state law, and in an original step, state government of Massachusetts came down on Hawley and said, you have to undo what you have done. What they had done was reamed out the river with the strategy that when you ream out a river and you make it straight, It'll get the water out of town fast. Well, it does. Water in deeper channels flows faster than water in shallow channels. But then it may get the water away from you, but what does it do downstream of you? It sends the water all more fiercely, taking out bridges, roads, and houses. So the state of Massachusetts came back at Hawley and said, you fix it. You undo what you had done. So I expect that there was some enforcement action There was some lawmaking that followed that enforcement action that made it all the more difficult for any community in the future to do what the town of Hawley had tried and, in fact, accomplished after Tropical Storm Irene. One of the surprising things I learned about during the research of the book was that when I set out to do it, I thought that most of what I'd be writing about would be in the 19th century. But in fact, it turned out that most of what I wrote about was our experience in the 21st century or the late 20th century. You know, many people think of wetlands in a negative way. They think of swamps, they think of bogs, they think of muck. They are mucky and such, but wetlands are tremendously important. But for much of our uh, history, certainly during the 19th century, wetlands were bad things. The Swamplands Acts from the middle of the 19th century reflected that view that wetlands are bad. By the fact that that act provided that the government, the federal government, would turn land over to the states, wetlands over to the states on the assumption or on the expectation that the states then would drain the swamps or wetlands. And the reason the government behaved that way is that it wanted to have land where there could be farming going on and such, or places to build. Well, our views regarding wetlands have changed since then. Interestingly, One of the factors was the introduction of new kinds of shotguns in the 19th century. That led to uh, an appreciation of uh, duck hunting. And uh, folks who liked to hunt for ducks were noticing that uh, the habitat for ducks was disappearing when wetlands got drained and dredged and such. And so that constituent group, as well as other people, nature lovers and the like, moved towards changing the way that we... We regard wetlands and, and turning to value them. Now, a reflection of just a semantic reflection of how we view wetlands is that in New Hampshire's law, which deals with wetlands, it's RSA 8485, its informal title is the Wetlands Act. The formal title is the Fill and Dredge in Wetlands Act. So, our consciousness, our awareness regarding wetlands was look, dredge them, fill them, get rid of them. Well, we've come to understand that, you know, substantial numbers of birds use wetlands as their habitat. Substantial numbers of endangered species, whether they have feathers or not, live in wetlands. So we've uh, changed our ways. A farmer today who fills in a wetland will not get any kind of federal crop subsidies for crops that are grown on that land. So that's a clear indication that our policies are directed toward saving wetlands, not draining them or getting rid of them.
1: So tell me now about Roaring Brook. You write quite a bit about Roaring Brook in the book. Roaring Brook is where the story, it's where my book got started. It's a
2: stream, it's four miles long, that connects The two reservoirs that are located in my tiny town of Roxbury, those reservoirs are not for the people of Roxbury. No, they are for the neighboring city of Keene. The first of these reservoirs was was created in 1885, and the second one, which is downstream of that first one, was built in 1931 to provide water for the residents and factories and other businesses in Keene. The stream that connects the two is called Roaring Brook. Why called Roaring Brook? Well, it's not the only brook in the East that's got that name. But when you go out there on a uh, super drenching storm day, the stream does put out quite a bit of noise. It's a stream that's got uh, wetland. It goes through wetlands. It goes through uh, one of those wetlands that's created partly by beavers who have built a dam. Um, it's uh, The stream has powered uh, water power in the early 19th century and today it still indirectly generates water power because there's a, a modern hydro unit inside the water treatment plant of Keene where all the water or most of the water in the stream winds up. So it's a productive stream as, so far as hydro goes. Uh, it's a place where I've seen fishermen at work They're not allowed to fish in the reservoirs because those are protected bodies of water. And it's simply a a beautiful waterway through the woods. It's a sight to behold. It was uh, observing that stream that I came to write the book because I was thinking how the water, the land protections around the two reservoirs and also a federal flood control dam in town on a different stream, how the watershed protections around those water bodies assured that the town of Roxbury would forever remain extremely green and undeveloped. He was sitting by the bucolic, beautiful, roaring brook, and I reflected on that matter and, and started researching the subject of water.
1: Well, I love that chapter in your book. As you walk along the brook... You describe the layers of history that you see. You see cellar holes and foundations of old mills. It just uh, reminded me of a writing by E.O. Wilson. I just think it shows you really care about water and the state of water, especially in New England. So do, did you have Brother. any comment on the drought going on in the western part of the United States? I mean, yesterday it was 125 degrees in Phoenix, and people are desperate for water out there right now.
2: As for the droughts out in the West, we have had droughts here in the East, but nothing like what's going on in the West. Why is that? Well, for one, the rainfall patterns in the West are not as robust as they are in the East. Here we get 40 inches of rain a year. Go to uh, Utah, go to Colorado, you're not gonna see 40 inches. Furthermore, you're using substantial amounts of water in the West for agriculture. Whereas this is not, there is farming in the Northeast to be sure, but not to the extent that you find it in the West. And then you have people building homes, population moving to the Southwest or to the West, and they need water to drink and water their lawns and wash their cars. So there have been efforts made for decades to assure plentiful water supplies in the West. There was a significant law passed many, many decades ago regarding the Colorado River, which is a a river that the agreement or the law involved a multitude of states plus the country of Mexico. Clearly, the expectation that that particular arrangement could assure steady water supplies has been uh, overridden by the fact of population growth. In that area. As for what they can do, you know, I do not know. Uh, you can pass only so many uh, restrictions on water use at home. Maybe you can put pass some restrictions on home building. As I say, even though there was, there have been droughts here in the east, in the northeast, droughts that have a hundred years ago idled water mills for some period of time, or droughts in the nineteen sixty that practically sent the Quabbin Reservoir that serves much of uh, Massachusetts, or at least the Boston part of Massachusetts, that drought uh, threatened the viability of that reservoir. But here in the Northeast, we do have rainfall patterns that mitigate against the chances of long standing drought. The one water connections that I wrote is really about the Northeast with its distinctive rainfall patterns and development history and topography. And The development history and topography and rainfall patterns in South Carolina are different from those of Oregon. They're different from those of New Mexico. We are not making water. Water is one thing that does not get made more of. You can melt some glaciers if you want, but we have the same amount of water as we did with a population of, I don't know, 300 million, as we did when we had a population of 2 million. We're not going to get any more water to help slake the thirst
1: of all those people. So, now you mentioned in your book that rivers have the remarkable ability to restore themselves. Can you tell our listeners how they accomplish that? Well, they
2: can accomplish that if they're given space to do so. Let me start first by picturing, or let us all picture, the Connecticut River. The Connecticut River runs in a southerly direction from close to the Canadian border down through New Hampshire and Vermont, or at least on the borders, Massachusetts, Connecticut. Fairly, generally a straight line. But if you were to get a satellite photograph of uh, taken maybe uh, 10,000 years ago, you would see that the Connecticut River did not follow exactly the path that it follows today. It moves around. And if given the room to do that, and and so why does it move around? Well, water moves in waves and it moves silt and sediment this way and that, causing itself to the river to turn this way or that way because of a barrier that's built up with the sediment. And so it tends to meander and it tends to move around. It tends to storm occasionally. It tends to sweep in um uh, impediments such as trees and such all with nutrition value and so if you leave the river alone or the stream alone and let it overflow periodically let it change its position periodically it can change its shape and if protected from any kind of infusion of uh, chemicals it can live a happy life but when you continually dump or leak or leach chemicals into the water, the river is going to maintain a pollution level. It cannot, the rivers can cure themselves of let's say some septic contamination, but it can't cure themselves, rivers cannot cure themselves of chemical intrusions such as the PFOA compounds or DDT and the like. And so, The message from all this is we need to take care about what we put into rivers. And we also might take care about how we hem in rivers and prevent them from engaging this meandering kind of flushing function that keeps them healthy. Healthy being natural, green, not filled with old tires. When you leave a stream alone, it's a happy stream. And so just play a role The imperative here is to play a role that does not unreasonably confine or damage another part of nature. We're slow to, you know, we're pretty slow to come to this understanding that some things we do can be damaging
1: to nature, rivers included. And I also understand a lot of old dams are being removed. Is that helping rivers restore their natural flow?
2: Well, helping rivers to restore their natural flow and also helping uh, aquatic uh, wildlife return to where they once were. We have an interesting case in the city of Keene. There is a river there by the name of Ash. It's the Ashwelet River. It's a, uh, it's a Native American name. I think it means the place between places. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how we got that definition, but nevertheless, the dam was built there in the 19th century to provide uh, water for large mills. And it, it presents itself as a nice, having a nice pond behind it. It's a beautiful uh, setting. There's a parkland around it. The mills are no longer using the water. And uh, the dam itself is in need of repairs. So the state government Bureau of Dam Safety has mandated that. The city of Keene do something about that. The concern being that the dam could fall apart one day and damage homes and other enterprises downstream. So there was a uh, a meeting held a year and a half ago in Keene, a public setting, public discussion. The focus being what should happen to this dam. Should the city of Keene repair it, keep it there as it's beautiful, uh, a reminder of our industrial history, and also the setting for a beautiful park? Or should the city of Keene tear it down to let the fish have full run on the river as they used to? Or should the city keep the dam and then add a fish ladder to it? And at the time, I'm quite active with the Historical Society in Keene, the Cheshire County, Historical Society of Cheshire County. I was president of the organization back then, and I attended the session, and people asked at the very beginning of the session about what should happen to the dam on the Ashwila River. And I said, well, of course, keep it, save it, fix it up, protect it. This way, people will know what our industrial history was. Well, after an hour and a half of discussion, the attendees were then again asked, What should happen to the dam? And I said, to my surprise, tear the thing down. Leave the bulwarks on the side as a reminder of our industrial history and leave it to the Historical Society to teach people about our local history, but turn the river over to the fish. By no means build one of those those, um, fish ladders, at least the ones that were proposed here are these huge cement structures that would frankly deface the dam. They would deface history. So... The city of Keene has not decided yet what to do about the dam. If it decides to repair it, it's gonna require the participation of the taxpayers of Keene, and not just for the repair immediately, but for continuing maintenance. So that's gonna be a fiscal question. But I bring this story up here just to illustrate that there are different views about what should happen to these great structures that were so important to us in the past. But I kind of like the idea of letting the river have its flow back. The parkland will survive. The setting will change somewhat. There'll be no pond there, but the river will be back
1: closer to what it was before we showed up. So talking about trees and water and their connection together, can you tell us about John Wingate Weeks?
2: John Wingate Weeks is a New Hampshire native. I believe he was born in Lancaster. He wound up he uh, in the uh, he was born in the late uh, 19th century. He wound up uh, moving to Boston, becoming a banker, and then running for Congress. And he so sort of represented uh, uh, a, I believe Boston in Congress. One of his first assigned, he he had hoped to be assigned to committees that dealt with finance and such. Instead. For reasons that are not entirely clear, he was assigned to a committee that was dealing with a request that came from people in New Hampshire, as also some people in the Appalachian regions. And what these people were seeking was the authority, or wanted to grant the authority to the federal government, to buy up land for conservation purposes. At that time, you had these great parks out west, Yosemite, Yellowstone, and the like. Those lands were not purchased from private parties. They were merely carved out of land that the federal government already owned and that also had, quote, no commercial value, no mining, no forests of any significance. So the federal government was not used to buying land from private parties for conservation. And the Speaker of the House at the time said he demanded, he insisted, not one cent for scenery. Well, The people in New Hampshire and in the Appalachian regions were concerned for the following reasons. There were loggers, lumber barons, who were raping the hillsides and not caring much for what they left behind. And so they left behind hillsides without any trees on them. That led to erosion. That led to spoilage, that led to to floods downstream from from all the erosion. That made people downstream who ran mills and also people upstream who had resorts, they were unhappy people. These folks from New Hampshire and the Appalachian regions wanted the federal government to get involved. Well, John Wingate Wiggs referred to an important Supreme Court decision in 1824. That Supreme Court decision had to do with Robert Fulton and his steamboats on the Hudson River. He had, Fulton, his great success was in establishing a steam power, but the success of his business owned not merely to his technology, but to the fact that he had secured a monopoly on Hudson Hudson River travel from the New York legislature. And so there were competitors, competitors, boat owners, who sued that wound up in the Supreme Court. And the case there that is to say the argument that the monopoly was wrong was made by Daniel Webster who had been en- a new hampshire man who had been engaged by the competitors on the hudson river and he argued that the in the uh, cause of interstate commerce the federal government should be the controlling force there and that no single state could grant a monopoly of any kind of commerce on the river the supreme court Ruled in favor of Daniel Webster, saying that the federal government is responsible for navigable waters, which is to, which is to say moving waters. So, John Gwynedd Weeks in the 1911 made reference to that particular ruling and said, Hey, the federal government is responsible for navigable waters, and what way to protect those waters than to protect the lands around those waters? protect the land around those waters, you prevent lumber barons from doing their awful thing, and you protect the lands from being eroded and and washing away uh, and causing great floods. So therefore, the federal government should be in position to be able to buy the lands from these lumber barons. The Weeks Act of 1911 was a success, it passed. It was signed by President Taft. And over the next uh, several decades, resulted in the purchase by the federal government of more than 25 million acres of open space, most of it east of the Mississippi. So here was a case where concerns about flooding led to action about land, that is to say, the protection of the land. Protect the land? then you reduce the chances of devastating floods happening in the streams and rivers. There we are. The federal government no longer makes land purchases of that order, but it is noteworthy that the federal government still does put money in to land conservation. And protecting the land is protecting the water.
1: That's correct. Protecting
2: the land is protecting the water. They are
1: connected. I'd like to thank Jim Ruminier for joining us today. You can find his book, Water Connections, What Fresh Water Means to Us and What We Mean to Water, by going to Amazon.com or the Barnes & Noble website. You can also find out more about Jim by going to his website at waterconnections.net.
0: Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers plants native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young you will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun for more information on one-third for the birds go to the bird hugger page on Facebook
1: And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.